welcome to this Diversity and Inclusivity Finance Forum podcast. Working for difference, making business better and fairer. The DIFF series of podcasts is aimed at helping people from underrepresented groups get into and get on in the mortgage and protection industry. And to help everyone understand why genuinely prioritizing diversity is good for all of us individually, good for your business, and good for the mortgage market as a whole. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals participating and not necessarily of their respective companies, either past or present. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to one of our series of DIFF podcasts looking at invisible differences. Today, we will be talking about the lived experience of two male carers. And whilst we accept that a huge part of the caring world out there, uh, the care is actually delivered by women, we just happen to have two very interesting men who have differently abled children, and one is from the corporate world, one is from the self-employed entrepreneurial distribution side. And we're just going to talk about their challenges and joys and issues in their different perspectives. So with all that taking into consideration, I'm going to introduce you to two fantastic guys. One is Steve Ellis. Steve was previously the founder and CEO of Legal and General Equity Release Business. He now leads on residential mortgage development work for the Phoenix Group, which includes the Standard Life brand, amongst others. He has a love of films, American football, and a hatred of running, which he does anyway. He married his wife, Claire, in 1999, and they have a collection of three young adults at home and or at university, which they loosely, and according to him, incorrectly, describe as the kids. Theo, 18, Lucas, 16, and George, 14. And joining him is Jeff Garrett. Jeff is a director at Henry Darnell. Jeff started his mortgage-broking career in 1998 before founding his first business in 2004. Today, he co-heads a mortgage brokerage firm in the private client space. Away from work, he has a love of most sports. He's an avid skier, golfer, and occasional marathon runner, so obviously he likes running. He is weird. He's married to Sarah, and they have three children, Chloe, 24, Hannah, 22, and Henry, 17. So to start off with, Steve, and then I'll come to you, Jeff, would you like to tell us about your differently able special child? Sure. Morning. Yeah, so Luca has a, an array of complicated chronic illnesses that were first diagnosed when they were 18 months. And really, that's where the trouble started, because it was actually very difficult to get anybody to agree what exactly was going on. And we were sort of labelled as overbearing parents and everything in between. It was only quite by chance we were talking to a paediatrician who referred us to a friend of hers who was writing a paper at Great Ormond Street. And that was how we got into the NHS proper at that point. Having said that, we issue labels for Luca and, and have tried to bring them up with the same sort of mindset. And so they've attended usual schools and all the other things that goes with being a child in as much of a normal world as we can. And on that point of sort of invisible versus visible, there's no way of looking at Luca, assuming she's up and about, that would lead you to believe that she's anything other than normal. And so she's constantly battling that thing of you don't look disabled, which has probably been the biggest challenge. She's 17. 
doing A-levels and we're just transitioning out of childhood care to adult care. That's probably as much as is worth saying at this point. Jeff, could you tell us about Hannah? And, and I think we'll come on to that adult transitioning. I know that you've both got a lot to say. Certainly Jeff has got a lot of lived experience to go through with that. So Jeff, could you tell us a bit about Hannah? Yeah, well, absolutely delightful. When she was born, there was nothing to suggest there was anything wrong whatsoever. And it was only she was hitting milestones much, much more slowly than would be normally expected. So she ended up being sort of labelled as having global developmental delay. And they had no idea actually what the reason was for this. And it wasn't really until I think she was about 14, she was selected to go on a, some form of trial to have a look at her genetic makeup that they actually discovered that she had a slight mutation of one of her genes, the STXBP1 gene. And that was the reason for the issues. And it was something that's a recent discovery. It wasn't something that was well known about until very recently. And one of the things that you have with this particular gene mutation is a propensity. I think 95% of sufferers have epilepsy and a varying degree of learning difficulties. In Hannah's case, she has epilepsy, which is very drug resistant. And she's probably, her understanding is fantastic. She understands everything, although she's very selective. She chooses not to understand what she doesn't want to understand. But I guess that's most kids. She's very, very smart in her own way, although her speech is probably that of a sort of 18-month-old. But she is, yeah, she's an absolute delight. She's away at college now and sort of do a life skills college course, which is suitable for her. And yeah, she's amazing. Steve, let's rewind a bit. So when you realised that Luca would need a different kind of support structure, what stage were you at in your career and what kind of choices were there in front of you and how did you react to the situation you found yourself in? We just bought, I guess everybody gets that point in their career when they start thinking seriously about settling down into an adult life with a proper home and all that good stuff. Claire and I had both committed to, I won't say senior, but professional roles where we were earning enough money to cover the mortgage and the bills and all of that. And it became very apparent just after we were admitted to Great Ormond Street for the first time that Claire wouldn't be able to work, certainly not in the short to medium term. And actually over the course of looking after Luca, the set of conditions that Luca has are so variable. We have good days and bad days, good weeks and bad weeks, good months and bad months that it's impossible really for Claire to find a role that would account for that kind of level of, I can do two weeks this week or I might be able to do a month, but now I need to be out for two months looking for for Lucas. So that really left us in a place where we were sort of both scratching our heads about exactly what we were going to do. Should we downsize out of the house, find somewhere a bit smaller? I was consulting overseas at the time. Obviously, that, that couldn't continue. So I was back in the UK and finding an office job and trying to push, find my way through corporate life to an extent where we could afford to pay the bills, pay the mortgage, as well as kind of adapting to having a differently able child in our household. And so that leads you to a different set of decisions, perhaps more focused on the material outcomes of fulfilling roles within corporate life, working to get yourself to a place where you can take on more responsibility, because quite often in corporate world, that means more money. Ultimately, where it led me to, though, is we kind of got to the point where things were really tough for a good duration of time. And so there was a business opportunity with my employer to go and start a business for them. It was three or four hours away from home. And so I was up there three, four days a week, three, four nights a week, 
doing that role because it was the quickest path to securing the financial well-being for my family. And so in terms of what it means to be a, I don't like the label carer, but whatever it is that I do in support of my family, while my wife is doing, if you'd like, the real caring, my end of that was the financial security of the family. And that led me to being away from home a lot of time for three or four years. And so that's the kind of pressure I think I would reflect on we put ourselves under, you know, that wasn't a decision that was taken lightly. And it wasn't certainly wasn't one that I made myself. Claire and I talked about it a lot at the time. But that's the kind of thing you have to adapt and change perhaps your approach to your career and thinking about your career and, and also thinking about exactly how you're going to get through the next week from a, a caring perspective, a hospital appointments perspective and actually a work perspective. And to what extent were your employers aware? What extent did you make them aware? Or what kind of flexibility were you offering? within the structure that you're working in? That's a trickier one to answer. And, and this goes back to the heart of what it meant for us to be a, a differently abled family, certainly to start with. And for most of my time with that employer, actually, I just didn't tell them. Now, that might seem really odd, but there's something about the label of disabled and a carer. And it's in my mind and in, in my wife's mind as well, actually, rather than anybody else's, I'm sure. But somehow that by telling people about it, we were accepting that it was real and that it was going to be a part of our life. And I guess at that point, we were still, you know, this is 2013, 14. We were still sort of in the space where we thought, well, the doctors say it might cure itself and we don't want to take on this label in case we're labelled that way for life. And I realise it's illogical and nonsensical. And I'm sure there are people out there listening who are sort of screaming at the podcast, what are you doing? What are you thinking? But that's the reality of it. It wasn't shame at all. It was more actually that locks us into something that we think that we still might have a chance of fixing. Does that make sense? I mean, it's nonsensical, right? <laughs> it's ridiculous. Now I've said it out loud. <laughs> acceptance is, is key, isn't it? I mean, acceptance is a very, very big part of the journey. Yeah. I mean, we didn't apply for a blue badge for years. We did some family holidays down in Cornwall and Devon. And there were times where my, well, what would he have been? Nine-year-old son, Theo, was piggybacking Luca to the beach so that I could carry all of the stuff we needed past all of the empty disabled bays. And we didn't want to apply for a disabled badge for the same reason. We Somehow as parents, it was a label that we, I guess it was the last part of control we felt we had over Luca's condition, you know, where we had all these doctors telling us all these things and all these hospital appointments. That felt like a tiny grain of control. And looking back, I'm not now because it's it's ridiculous but that's how we felt and so you take that pressure on and I would say to anybody listening tell your employer because they have to know because of this stuff you work-life balance doesn't work when you've got something like this and you're not talking to them about it you did mention to me once look a month later that for you you have a work-life care balance as well but let's move on to Jeff so Jeff where were you here in your career when the situation around Hannah started to sort of impact on what you were doing and the way you were thinking? I mean, she was born very, very much at the, at the start of my career. So you know, it was very early days. And, and, and initially, apart from she had seizures as a very, very small baby at about six weeks old, but they seemed to disappear and they, they didn't rear their head again until she was about six years old. So actually, during that period, we knew we had a child with differences, the global developmental delay and all the rest of it. But actually, at that time, Hannah was, you know, she just was the easiest child. There was nothing, you know, she was just brilliant. So there was nothing very obvious. And I think the big change came when the epilepsy kicked in at about six years old. And then we were in a situation where we were probably, they were all at that time nighttime seizures. 
So she was having between maybe seven to 10 seizures a night. And that obviously had a huge impact because at the time I was involved in running a business and working you know, long hours, working hard. And of course, you've got this every sort of 40 minutes being woken up effectively. So that obviously takes its toll night after night after night. But in terms of what was what we were able to do about it, it you know, there were times when my wife just said to me, look, you've got to get up at 5.30, just I'll deal with it, which is suboptimal. But in terms of how my firm at that time could offer any support, I mean, they were aware of it. And my colleagues were, I guess, you know, I hate the word sympathetic, let's say, but there wasn't really anything that they could do or, or anyone could do, really. It was just a question of crack on and try and find a solution to the epilepsy. So that, that in itself has been a a very, very long and winding road. But in your space, did you find that the fact that you were self-employed, that you could construct your own day, even though that day may have tended to be long, do you feel that that helped rather than being in a structure where you sort of had to be there at nine, you had to be seen to be there till 5.30, that kind of thing? Yeah, it's interesting. Looking back at it now, I think I just cracked on. It wasn't like I was, I mean, if we had hospital appointments and things like that, which were not that frequent, but, you know, were probably maybe, what, maybe two or three times a year, I'd go to those. So that was easy. I didn't have to ask permission to go and do that sort of thing. That was, that was very simple. But I think in terms of day to day, I don't think it really, I had to work. So it wasn't really a question of, you know, I was there well before nine o'clock and there probably well after 5.30. And that was the reality. So a huge burden fell on my on my wife, who was very much the principal carer for Hannah. And like Steve, was that a decision you both made? Yeah. Yeah. Did your wife say, right, you go and do the money thing and I'll do this thing here and hold the fort, that sort of stuff? Very much so. Yeah, I mean, that was a decision we probably made. Yeah, Chloe had been born two years before Hannah, and we were in that sort of mindset already. There wasn't a career sacrifice that Sarah had to make per se, but certainly a, a huge burden was placed upon her in terms of the care side of things. And I use the word burden very lightly because two things I would always say about Hannah is she brings enormous joy to us both. And... The other thing I always say about her is I describe her as the greatest education of my life because she's taught me what's really important and uh, not what I thought was important. Couldn't agree more with you on that second point. Yeah, I mean, we're going to explore the joys of that sort of thing because it's not all doom and gloom. And, and I think, Steve, you've described the fact that the bonding of the whole family is something that brings you enormous joy and is glorious to watch. It's funny as parents, you have these sort of aspirations of being a parent. And then, as Jeff says, for whatever reason, and we had really tricky nights with Luca when they were much younger for different reasons, but still illness related. And you, you sort of wonder what kind of a parent you're going to end up being. But I was reflecting on this after we talked about the possibility of doing this podcast. We just went away to see my eldest up at his uni. And the three of them, our three kids are, are so close and that's probably the thing that makes me the most proud and makes me the most happy is both George and Theo look after Luca in the right way. You know, don't let her get spoilt too much for being different to them, but also are looking out for their best interests and making sure that they're taking their meds because they're useless at remembering. And in fact, actually, I haven't mentioned before, but Theo is at uni studying to be a paramedic. And I'm sure in part that's come about as a result of forcing him to 
traipse around all kind of hospitals with Luca and piggybacker through hospital wards and pusher with wheelchairs and all that good stuff. I'm sure it's all come from there. So yeah, tremendously proud and happy that the three of them are, are so very close as a little group. I mean, they give me and Claire absolute hell when they're together, but you know, so goes the world. Well, yeah, and you deserve it, obviously. And Jeff, I think you said in our previous conversation, you wind up your kids by letting Hannah get away with murder because she's your favourite. That that's the phrase you used. Often, you know, the, the kids will say to me, you know, why have you let Hannah get away with that? You wouldn't let us get away with that. So I, I sort of, well, lightly use the word diffuse the situation by saying, well, that's because she's my favourite, which always goes down very, very well. Though I think they know I'm joking, but it still amuses me nonetheless. So do we, can we just segue to some more serious sort of stuff? So Steve, you got to the point, as long as you don't mind me discussing it, you got to the point where the work-life care balance got to you in quite a serious way would you mind sort of like you know talking about that part of things yeah sure why not i had a breakdown so this would have been a few years back and we'd had a really awful year frankly my mum had had a stroke my mother-in-law had died and luca had been really poorly off and on that year and i was traveling all over for my then employer and yeah i didn't notice it it crept up on me insidiously but thankfully my best friend and my missus both pulled me to one side and said over Christmas you need to do something because this is really bad and actually at that point I sort of it was an uncomfortable few months let's put it that way and I did end up talking to my employer and I did end up taking a negotiated exit with them and just in a moment of either genius or insanity it happened to coincide with the first lockdown and it took me I would say six or seven months before I could think straight again and so yeah it's a tough time and I don't really have any answers or anything massively prosaic or wise to say about that period except that I became aware during that time that actually not talking to people about it and feeling guilty when I got home from work or or whatever because I'd not been around really was not helpful to the family as a whole, as well as not being helpful to me, which is why coming out the other side of it, working with Phoenix, you know, I'm quite vocal about Luca and Luca's conditions and what we've been through. We're sort of joining support groups to help other folks. I'm doing things like this and talking really openly to about it with my colleagues through the Carers Network that Phoenix runs. And so, yeah, and that was my, I guess, 2020. You don't realize, I think if you run a marathon, I've not run a marathon, by the way, I've run a half marathon. I think you sort of realize at various points throughout that run where you are with your physical reserves of energy, you know, how much you've got left in your legs and your lungs to get you over the line. I think my reflection was that I completely misunderstood my mental reserves to the point where I think if I pushed on another month, I would have been in an even worse position than I found myself in when I realised I was out. I don't know whether that was what you were expecting me to say, Barrett. That's amazing. And thank you very much for being honest, because I think for all the people that saw you, you led a whole market, Steve, and you were very kind enough to be the opening speaker at one of our equity release events a couple of times. And you were fantastic. You had the audience in the palm of your hand. That's very kind of you. Although I think they were looking daggers at me after the way that you introduced me a few times. But it's, it's that's the thing about one of the healthcare people I was talking to about my own condition was saying about the energy that you put into being like a swan. You know, I'm not sure that a swan's the right phrase for me, all elegant above the water, but behind the scenes kicking like mad. That may not have been a, a good physical representation, but mentally that's definitely where I felt I was putting all my effort into either my family or into my role and none of it into myself. And Jeff, I'm not sure you went through anything like this, but 
again, you're a hugely driven guy that I've met. And do you think some of that drive comes from making sure that you're protecting and creating an environment where your children and Hannah in particular could flourish? I've not thought too much about it. Yeah, I think it, it, it definitely has an impact. I mean, in terms of motivation, I mean, I find having Hannah in our lives and in my life, I think it's just perspective. I think it just gives tremendous perspective. And I think the greatest thing about that is when things are not going well, you don't get too down. And when things are going really well, you don't get too up because maybe it's, it's given me a perspective that you might not have otherwise. So I think that's a huge benefit. Let's go to another point that we touched on when we were chatting beforehand. And I think, Steve, you, you talked about it. The transition into adulthood can be quite abrupt, can't it? Yeah, we've been quite lucky in a way because Luca's array of conditions are not entirely unique, but somewhat unique. And so getting into Great Ormond Street and the doctors say, oh, you've got this and you need that and you've got this. And what that led to was us being quite lucky in a way that we ended up seeing the head of gastroenterology at Great Ormond Street, the head of eyes at Great Ormond Street. These are top top doctors and specialists and surgeons and what have you and that's all been great and going up to Great Ormond Street I always say to people the reception of Great Ormond Street is a great leveler in terms of human experience and expectation you can walk in there and see every color of human emotion going on within the space of a few yards Great Ormond Street is an amazing amazing place for kids who are ill to to be treated and you go there and sure, you know, like just like everywhere else with a health service where they're stretched, you, sometimes you go there and the appointments aren't quite right, but the care is second to none. Now you take that and when you transition into adult care, what you find or what we found is we're now for this part of Luca's condition, we're at UCL for eyes, we're at Moorfields and, and so on and so forth. And, and we're sort of at the same time that Luca is adapting to not having us running her healthcare in quite the same way that we have been, because obviously we want Luca to take some responsibility for herself as she's going to have to. We've also now got the position where we're sort of talking to two or three or four different hospitals and different doctors. Now, the level of healthcare is still absolutely amazing and they do their best to transition. And I don't think it's helped because of where we are with COVID and skipping appointments and all that good stuff. But it is at the same time that you're getting used to taking responsibility for your own healthcare from Luca's perspective is also the time that it feels very fragmented. And that's led to us not having an easier transition. It's, it's been quite tricky, candidly. Jeff, I, I think you're going through the same thing, right? Well, yeah, d- different. It's not the healthcare. And I suspect it, it sounds like our respective daughters are at very different levels in terms of their independence. And I think for me personally, our situation, that the healthcare is, is not the issue. You know, that's not the issue at all. It's in the transition from education to what these young people with learning difficulties and special needs, how they're managed in the wider environment and and how they're looked after. When they're at school, and Hannah was at an excellent special needs school, and we've managed to find her a place at a fabulous college down on the Hampshire-Dorset border, which is amazing, but that obviously will not last forever. They're entitled to education up until the age of 25 for children with learning difficulties. But it's it's the next step. And that's where these young people really fall off a cliff in terms of the social care situation. Because if you let it happen, you could have a young person being put in sort of day centre care with people in their 60s, 70s and 80s and no one bats an eyelid and they think that's okay. 
Whereas, you know, we're in this situation where we are fighting like crazy for Hannah to make sure that she's in age-appropriate situations and things are maintained for her and she's doing the things that she should be doing at the age of 22. So that, that's really where it becomes very challenging for people that need to have external care for their loved ones, in my experience. Do you think it helps to be very open with everybody around you about Hannah, because you talk about her in the same way as you talk about your other children, but you don't shy away from the fact that she is differently abled, etc. So you introduce them all as the team Garrett, as you like. Do you think it will help her that she has always been treated with exactly the same sort of outlook as everybody else? I think we do. I mean, a lot of what we have to do at home does, when Hannah is at home with us, and she comes back from college and school holidays, um, ticking off the days until she comes back for half term in um, nine days' time, which will be fantastic. Can't wait for that. Um, but yeah, things do change. I mean, my wife and I were talking about it the other day, that we sort of have two lives. We have life with Hannah at home and life when Hannah is away. And you know, the freedom that we can just be spontaneous and say, decide what we want to do on the spur of the moment when Hannah's away. But when Hannah is at home, Things have to be structured in such a way around her meal times, which are important part of treatment for her epilepsy, to the you know, the fact that she may not want to get up at seven o'clock in the morning. She might want to get up at half past eight in the morning when she's on holiday. So you have to wait for her to be ready. And my wife virtually uh, all of the time getting her you know breakfast ready and then getting her showered and all of these sorts of things. So it's just a different, you know, it's lovely. But we enjoy both, actually. But it's a different environment, a different sort of set of uh, rules, if you like. But both are great. But being, being open about it, I mean, I, I have no inhibitions about discussing Hannah at all because she's a fantastically interesting human being and uh, she's a great subject. Steve, let's go back now to what you said about Phoenix, which sounds fantastic. There's a number of other companies. I know that LNG and Zurich and other people give extra time off for carers, extra carer days, holidays, and have carer support groups, etc. That seems to be quite a big thing. Is it enough? Does it need to be done more? I just would like you to explore what would be an ideal for a corporate to do in terms of awareness, thought, and care for, and I know you don't like the term, sort of the carers that they actually employ. So there's a carers network, and I think Phoenix has a really good carers policy. From memory, it's, it's 10 days of carers leave, I think. It's a tricky subject, though, because we were reflecting on this in the carers network, and there are thousands of employees of the Phoenix Group worldwide. The number that turn up that are male to carers groups is very small. And in a previous life, when we were doing market research around the topic of care, particularly this was more, though, people looking after their parents than necessarily about their kids. You know, overwhelmingly, what we heard was the label carer doesn't really mean anything to a lot of people. I'm not a carer. I look after my dad. I'm not a carer. I go shopping for my mum once a week. I'm not a carer. I just ferry Luca to and from school. But those things inherently are care. Those things inherently in a corporate world, when you're doing a nine to five, those things do take reasonable adjustments. And you can't expect an employer to do those things unless you talk to them openly about it first. From an employer's side, I think there's just understanding that the label 
perhaps doesn't work for everybody. And just because lots of people aren't using maybe some of the benefits they might be pushing out through a a corporate HR program doesn't mean that they're not needed or required. It just means that the word carer is quite, I think the word carer is quite divisive. I think to a lot of people, particularly in a post-COVID world, it means medical care. And quite often, as we're finding with Luca, Luca's medical care is sort of declining as they're able to manage their condition much better. And it's the social care that requires more effort on our part. And that does mean I can't be on conference calls at six at night because I'm running Luca to a club or something because I need to make sure that their social network continues. So yeah, for me, I think it's just more acceptance. Corporates are great at sticking labels on things. I just don't know whether employees necessarily are as in favor of labels or not. That's just my view. You get the feeling from the outside that people are beginning to show a great deal more understanding that these things are addressed. What I do agree with you on wholeheartedly is the issue around sort of men seeking out sort of support and help, etc., or admitting it. And, and I think that it's down to everybody to get people, employees, to get them more involved. So if you know someone who is doing something that takes up time to support somebody else in whatever way that might be, whatever you want to call it, you should encourage them. And I think corporates need to go and find them a bit more rather than just wait for them to come. Jeff, when it comes to running your own business and all that sort of stuff, how much, if you were going to employ a new advisor, how much slack would you be willing to cut them if you knew that they had other responsibilities back at home? It all comes down to communication, doesn't it? I think in our world, it's very much a, it is a very performance-related environment where you, know, you get rewarded based upon exactly what you produce. So it's a difficult one for the, it's more difficult for the advisor actually, because from, from our perspective, if we know someone's got an issue, we would obviously encourage them wholeheartedly to discuss it with us openly and we would give them our full support. I think that's important. And I think if someone was coming in and we knew that they had a child with special needs that required the sorts of things that I know that that role, you know, you would have to give up that time to be present at those sorts of events. I don't think that would phase us at all. I think from our perspective, we judge every candidate on them and are they right for the role? And if they needed our support, of course, we'd be willing to give it. And I think, you know, obviously I've got that empathetic side to me in terms of what I do actually understand because I've been through that. So yeah, that wouldn't face us at all. It's interesting that it's almost like a positive having other responsibilities at home in terms of becoming employed. You've learned, both of you, you've learned so much. You've become you're hugely more empathetic. It's probably made you better leaders. It's probably made you just better human beings to work with and for. So it's almost if somebody says in an interview, I've got a differently abled child or I've got an elderly mother that I look after, etc. That should and could be seen as, hey, that makes you probably a better employee. Yeah, I mean, I think quite possibly that you could say that. I mean, certainly on a human level, it gives people different perspectives. And, and you know, I think culturally, that's very important for us as a business. The culture within our business is very, very important. And we do put a lot of store by the human qualities of the people that work in our business. So it probably allows you to be more rounded in a, in a way that, you, know, you might not be if you haven't experienced or been involved in that world because, yeah, as I said earlier on, it's perspective. You can just see you see things differently. I was just reflecting, actually. So when I ran the equity release business, 
we were like 120 people. And I won't say that I sat in on every single second interview, but it was a lot. I'm really struggling to recall that topic of conversation ever coming up. I think it would be very difficult for an employer to raise that because it could be seen that we're trying to find out because we don't want to give you a job. And there's that whole kind of dancing around I just want to get a job. The number of people that told me afterwards once they were in the building, and that was the sort of point where I was beginning to think about how having a differently abled child or being a part of a caring family has an impact on their role. It became easier to have those conversations with them once they were employed. But I just wonder to what extent people need to feel more comfortable in a hiring situation to both ask the question and to talk about it without it being seen as, well, if we ask, then... I'm not sure you could ask, actually. No, no, you can't. No, you, you definitely can't. But it's more about having an honest conversation. I think communication is a key element. But I think it's a, in our experience, and I think certainly from what you said, Steve, I think acceptance of a situation when your child is different, we would spend, you know, our Hannah will be talking by next Christmas. You know, we went through that phase year after year. But it actually, life becomes much, much more straightforward once you accept that the situation actually is the situation and it's part of your life. And then you can adapt to it a little bit more easily. You know, I was talking to someone recently and they had a, a child that had been born into a situation that was not quite as they'd expected. And they were struggling to, to come to terms with the child's condition. We'd spoke a lot about the acceptance being such an important part of the journey. And communication, you know, I think it's, um, you know, from what you've said, Steve, in terms of your experiences and how it affected your mental state, I wonder if communicating the issue and being open about it from a much earlier stage, you know, I wonder if that would have helped you considerably. I don't know. It's the, the piece about accepting kind of felt like we were giving up. Certainly that's how I felt. Like we were giving up on trying to ensure that Luca had, you know, quote unquote, a normal life as much as possible. And the reality is Luca's had, quote unquote, a normal life anyway, sort of irrespective. But in our heads, you know, the, the sort of the constant battling with healthcare or with education or, or whatever, just to try and make that process easier for them, I think probably would have been easier if we just accepted right from the start. It's not something you go in with a plan for, right? I do sort of feel that, listening to both of you, labels are sort of divisive in this instance and so everybody's situation is different and sometimes it's the fear of what a label can mean to you and I think you can accept it but still not like the label that's the feeling I get from you and I think going forward everybody needs to have greater awareness and be able to talk about this sort of thing I, I know there's some great companies out there that do inclusiveness meetings where employees can gather together and actually talk about certain issues, et cetera, et cetera. And the invisible differences, you know, which will include things like mental health, are a huge part of what needs to be discussed in order to get people to feel much more included in the workplace and indeed in society. So all I can say is thank you both very, very much. And you've given a lot of yourselves and given us some insight into the issues, but also the joys of having special, and that's not with any other word, but just special children. So Steve Ellis, Jeff Garrett, thank you very much indeed. If you have enjoyed this episode and want diversity and inclusion to have as wide an audience as possible, make sure you share with your friends and colleagues and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode.